Ephesians and chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. If we wanted to think of a particular text, probably would say that verse 12 would be the main area of our thoughts this evening, where Paul reminds the people of Ephesus, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. We must bear in mind at all times when reading these letters, that to a certain extent these letters are private. That is, they were addressed to particular situations by particular people, and they are concerned with the situations that had arisen, that demanded that something be done. And Paul here is bringing to the attention of the Ephesians, the people at Ephesus, what they were once upon a time. That is before they had come to know Christ, or as we might put it, before they were converted. And I want us then to spend some time this evening looking at some of the words that Paul uses to describe the condition of the unconverted. This morning we're thinking about the blessings and the privileges of believers. They are in Christ and we spoke about all the, the benefits that are encompassed in that word in. And we particularly thought of the wonderful work of the new creation when people are made new by the grace of God. We look then this evening at another angle, not those who are in Christ, but those who are without, or therefore out with him. Let's look then first of all to observe some of the points that Paul makes. He says first of all, verse 12, after he mentions the fact that they were separate from Christ, that they were excluded from citizenship in Israel. Or, as we have it in the authorised version and some other versions, aliens. Now this was, remember, quite an important thing to these Gentiles, because they were living in not just any city, but as a Roman city, part of the Roman Empire. And such people often found that to be a part of the Roman Empire, part of a famous city in the Roman Empire, was a matter of great prestige. You were privileged, you were different. And you could say, I belong to Ephesus, as opposed to any other of some of these smaller towns and cities that wouldn't have quite the name and the prestige that Ephesus had. But here Paul is telling the people that whatever you were, with regard to Roman citizenship, as far as God was concerned, they were excluded from the citizenship of Israel. Israel being then God's people. 
We're reminded then that unbelievers or unconverted, those who have never come to know Christ, are aliens to the things of God, basically. Now that means quite a number of things. In the case of Israel, it means that they were not in receipt of God's promises, of God's blessings, of the privileges surrounding those things, of his protection, and so on. And those then who are outside of Christ tonight ought to reflect on this fact, that you have no rights before God. That's quite a humbling thing. Because many people seem to think that they have got some rights, at least before God. But you have to go a long way to try and find an answer to what your rights are. You have to conjure up a lot of ideas to try and work out why it is that you think you've got some rights before the Almighty God. You see, once sin came into the world, our rights were forfeited. We have no rights before him. We cannot claim anything from him. Maybe a person has come at a time of dire need and have prayed to God that God would hear the prayer. Not the fact that no right for God to expect them to answer their prayers. They have no rights. They're stateless in God's sight. As I say, it's a humbling experience to be in this condition. The same as it must be for any person who has come to our own country and who has no rights. He doesn't have a voice. He has no representation before the authorities. And if the authorities say, out, then he's got no rights. He cannot make any protest or claims. He needs to have rights. And so as far as God's word is concerned, if we don't know Christ, then we've got no rights, none at all, before his presence. We cannot claim one thing because our sin, our personal sin, our collective sin, our inherited sin, forfeits all rights to anything from God himself. This also means, also too, that those who are unbelievers have no right to criticize so freely as they often do God's people and the things that they do. It might seem a perfectly normal thing, a legitimate thing to look at the lives of Christians and say, well, look at those Christians, what they're doing. But really, whatever rights they have, no real rights to complain about. Because they themselves are not in a position to proclaim that right. Because each one of God's people, each individual, is under his care, his protection, his love. And if any objections to their character or to their conduct, we should address our objection to the Lord himself. It's so easy and it's so common for people to bring down the Lord's people without realizing just what it is they're doing. For all their inconsistencies, we're not saying Christians don't have inconsistencies. We're not saying they're not guilty of various sins at different times. And we don't condone them. The non-Christians still have no real rights to complain about them. They are then, shall we say, stateless. They have no rights. But Paul goes on further to say and remind these people what they once were. Foreigners to the covenants of promise. This is maybe more to do with the idea of being strangers to the covenants of promise. They were estranged. 
is not the essence of the covenant. The covenants were made in the past. And the very essence of those covenants was a friendship of God. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. The friendship of God. That is truly really the essence of the center and the heart of the covenant with God's dealings with people. Whatever they were, this is God's way. And so he has promised to be their God. And the uh, people who are in this relationship, who have been brought into the covenant relationship with God, are brought into this relationship of friendship. That's rather a wonderful thought, if you can take time to think about it. That each believer is a friend of the Almighty God. Sometimes it's so great we cannot grasp it. But that is the essence of his covenant with us. That's what we're remembering this morning about the Lord Jesus Christ. About who our friends really are. The Lord Jesus Christ has shown his love for us. He's shown his friendship. He's laid down his life for the sheep. But they're also his friends. And you're my friends if you keep my commandments. He reminds them. They are his friends. Because if they're a friend that's sicketh closer than our brother, he reminds us in the scriptures. And so these people who are strangers are what we call friendless people. And we know that no matter how many people live in a community or in a town, that these communities and towns are still full of friendless people. People whose lives are empty. Empty of friendship. There's a deep desire to have friends. And they look and they search and they find that friendship is a very scarce commodity. They find that no matter where they go, there's no real true friends. Because even the very best of friends sometimes go away. Or we move ourselves from their company. They even let us down. We find they can't actually really understand our situation every time. And so Paul is reminding these people that there was a time when you were friendless. When you never knew the friendship of God and what that really means to your own experience. As if that's not enough, he goes on to mention the fact that they are without hope. Hopeless. And isn't that a picture of the world? Just stop for a little while. What's clamoring on? What hope is there for this world if you look? What message can the governments of the various nations give to their people of hope? Not very much. Very often it's just what we call sometimes pious platitudes. Wishful thinking that things will work out all right in the end. But there's no real hope for mankind that any politician can give that is based on some solid fact or some reliable truth but Paul is reminding the Christians that they have a genuine hope a hope that maketh not ashamed a hope that can give them a confidence an expectancy that no matter what the outer circumstances of this world that God is at work that God is fulfilling his purposes and God's thoughts towards each one of his people is peculiarly special and precious to him and that even in the world with all its clamor, that this 
a calamity will one day stop and that things will be brought to a conclusion and all the Lord's people will be brought together. There's great hope, real hope. Hope also that the gospel will have an effect upon people's lives, our neighbours, our friends, even our relations. Not just a vain possibility, but a confidence in the word itself. A hope that goes on hoping. Not vague, but solid. Their hope then. But of course a hope that we have must be based on something solid. And so the basis of this hope then is nothing else and nothing short than the promises of God. And that's how the Christian has got a hope. The alternative to this hope is fear and despair. And that is a characteristic of our world. And many people that are still living so near to us, we don't recognize them. That they've got no hope, they've got fear. And many of them live in despair. And many of them try to blind themselves to the reality of their condition and to the world situation by different ways and different things. Paul reminds them there's a time when they too were without hope. But he goes further than that. He says they were without God. Godless. The idea of being godless then is surely the idea of having something greater than us to be with us go through life. Other nations and other religions have gods. Each religion perhaps has its gods. But it may be in the case of these people, they hadn't even got that. We're not too sure, but they were certainly godless. They didn't know the living God. And without God, they were without an awful lot. They were out without a true knowledge. Whatever knowledge they had, it wasn't a true knowledge. Therefore, they were without holiness. They were without righteousness. They were without peace. And all these things. And they were without joy. Which all comes through knowing God. All these things come through the knowledge of God. But these people were godless. Whatever they did, whatever they knew about God, they were without these things. They had no holiness. And if you are without Christ tonight, if you don't know him as your Lord and Saviour, whatever you are, you are without holiness. And without holiness, no man shall see God. You are without righteousness. You have nothing good. At least that is commendable in God's sight. Now we're not talking about what other people think about your lives or what you even think about them yourselves. We're not talking about human standards, we're talking about divine standards. And without God, as our God, we've got no righteousness or nothing upright that would make us to be accepted in God as acceptable in his presence. And without that, we've got no peace. There's no peace within our hearts. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God. We've none of those things. And we've no joy with God, or even real joy in this world without Him. Not real joy, but we've got something. Someone has put it, without God, we are rudderless in the sea of life. We have no control, real control of our lives. I think it's only worse than rudderless. Not only have we got no rudder, we also don't know which way to head. 
We have no lighthouse to guide us to where we should go with our lives. Not, uh, not, nothing solid. We have no light to guide us. But we can move on to another category that Paul gives us. Not only here in Ephesians 2, but also Romans chapter 5. And Paul speaks there about similar situation. Verse, uh, Romans chapter 5. You see, as verse 6 he says, you see at just the right time when we were still powerless. Powerless. Reminding them of the time which, as he wasn't himself, whatever he was, he had no power. Power to lift himself from the power of sin. No power to set himself free from the influence and therefore ultimately the penalty of sin is powerless helpless if you want to put it that way this was his condition and that's the condition of each non-unbeliever or non-Christian or unconverted, whichever word you want to use and that you are powerless you cannot lift yourself up from this pit that you are in you mightn't feel you're in a pit the reason for that is because we can make ourselves quite comfortable in the most unpleasant circumstances. Human beings are good at adjusting themselves to their life's conditions. And they can not only learn to put up with things, they can actually learn to enjoy life. And sometimes in extreme conditions. You see that in conditions of those, uh, for instance, in prisoner war camps and so on. How they're able not only to exist, but have a remarkable existence. And there are those today who are powerless, who are, in, who are held by the power of sin, and who have no strength to make themselves right before God, who don't recognize that power, who don't realize that they haven't got strength, that they're actually helpless. And now and again, maybe the light might come to their mind to realize what their condition is, and they'll try to scramble up from their condition and try to be set free, but they're powerless. That's what Paul, Paul should know. For if anyone could get themselves free from sin, surely Paul could. He was a fine man, upstanding character, religious, pious, conscientious person. Yet it's the same one who tells us that we, he was powerless without Christ. He couldn't lift himself from, this, from the power of sin, from the condition that he was in. We often find that in the cases of our children sometimes. They're, they're quite strong-willed. And you tell them something, they can't do that. You're just not old enough to be able to do that. But they'll try. And many people spend their whole lives trying to do something which they'll never have the power to do, and that is to lift themselves from their present condition, their sinful state. But the, the Word of God tells us even more. Even this very same chapter, Romans 5 and 6, tells us without Christ, ungodly. This speaks more than just being godless. Quite often it refers to a state of rebelliousness. Not as if we don't have God in our lives, but we don't want to have him in our lives. That's what it amounts to. Not just irreligious, but living our lives in contradiction to God's commands. And therefore, deserving God's wrath. 
What is the ultimate result of a life, an ungodly life? A life that is not submitted to God's commands is a life that must experience God's wrath. And did Paul himself in Ephesians 2, uh, here, chapter 3, uh, chapter 2, sorry, verse 3, he speaks about the old sinful nature and he speaks, speaks about being objects or children of wrath. Like the rest, were by nature objects or children of wrath. He knew what it was to be in that position of being deserving God's wrath and deserving God's punishment. But Romans 5 and 7 also reminds us what it is to be without Christ, it is to be saviorless, to have no saviour. And that is the truly worst thing to be. Life is maybe lonely. My life might be empty, but to be told we've got no saviour is to be told something catastrophic. To be reminded of something that is fearful, because if we've no saviour, then there's no hope for us at all at the end of life. Well, some people would like to believe that ultimately things will work out at the end. That somehow or other things will just turn out all right. They usually do. And they go through life with this vague expectancy. But without a saviour, you've no hope. You've no chance of escaping from the wrath and from the penalty of your sin. Because your sin is personal and your sin must receive. The wages of sin is death. In other words, you must receive your wages. There's some wages you reject and there's some wages you won't be very happy with. Although it's not often the case. But this is one you cannot refuse. And it's one that will not be pleasant. But it's one that we will receive. The wages of sin is death. Without a saviour then, we're sinners. And that means we're living and controlled by sinful motives. That is the controlling factor in our lives. You see, anything is not of God, it's of self, and basically of sin. As far as motivation and control in our lives is concerned. If we're sinners, they will be motivated and we're controlled by sinful motives. But then, don't we not come to verse 12 here again and reflect upon the first few words that we never spent much time looking at. Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ. This surely is the, really the climax of what we've taken at last. Because with all these different things we've been speaking about, as being godless, friendless, helpless, hopeless, powerless, rebellious, and savourless. Just through one person, our whole lives can be so transformed and changed. Just by one person, Christ. And that's surely what Paul is trying to tell the people. He remind them. When you were separate from Christ, you were in this condition. And as long as you this evening don't know Christ, you were in that condition. Now remember how it doesn't matter what we feel about our conditions. Because feelings are very deceptive. You can speak to a person who might have cancer. And they might feel in such good condition. But yet, when an objective diagnosis, an assessment is taken of that life, the disease is there. 
And we're referring then not just to opinions of men, but to God's word, what it says about us. Not what the free church says, but what God's word says about us. And that is that we are all these things without Christ. And if we are all these things without Christ, then what sort of people ought we to be? And what ought we to be doing? In this case, Paul is merely reminding the Christians of what they once were. But we this evening perhaps are going further than that. We're not only reminding you perhaps of what you are, as it may be the case, but also reminding you of what you, may, what you could yet be through Christ. Remember what it means then to be with Christ according to this. We can reverse the, the way things have been going. If you are with Christ, then you're no longer stateless. You have a right in God's presence. You can claim of him things you can claim of no one else. You can ask God to bless you. You can ask God to remember your family. You can ask God to protect your family. You can ask God for the blessings of himself upon the community. You've got these rights when you come to know God. You're not friendless. You've got a friend that will never desert you. will never fail you. Although we might fail him as we often do in our own friends. You've got a real friend. You're not hopeless. You've got a real hope for life. We're not just basing this on some vague expectation that maybe things will work out. But you've got the confidence as we notice of the promises of God. That all things work together for good to them who love the Lord. That it will work. And then you've got God himself. You've got him with you. He's your friend. He's not just the great God up there. He's the God in your heart. And then you've got strength. Which you didn't formerly have. Strength to do his will. To fulfill his commandments. Not perfectly. But through Christ there is perfection. Whatever feelings we have are made up for in Christ Jesus himself. You are complete in him. Nor are we rebellious. We're quite the opposite. We're brought into a state of peace with God. Our lives are living in harmony with the divine will. Credible as that sounds, that's what it amounts to. When we close in with the offer of the gospel of Christ. When people ask Christ, what is the works of the Father who might do them? These people are concerned about works, you see. A lot of people are concerned about works. And his answer was, that you believe in him whom he hath sent. Summarize everything we can do with our bodies, and with our minds and with our hearts. There's only one thing. Believe in him whom he hath sent. And that is the call of God to lay down the arms of rebellion and to submit to his claim upon our lives as almighty God as creator and the giver of life and as one who, de one who deserves our worship and then we notice also that if we have Christ we do have a saviour we have a helmsman to lead us to guide us through life or most of all to take us through death it's a great uncertainty no matter what part of the world we live in it's never far away it's a great uncertainty and yet it's the greatest certainty there is what we're uncertain about is what is like 
But what we are certain about is that it will come. And so this is why we need the Saviour. In the face of the certainty of death, however long it might be delayed, we need strength. Without Christ, we not only have nothing, we are nothing. With him, we are strong. With him, we are not alone. How would you stand this evening in the light of what God says and what Paul says here in reference to the Ephesians people, the Christians? Yes, there were these people who were called Christians. But these people had a living relationship with their God that brought them into this condition of being with God and knowing Him as their friend, as their saviour, as their strength, as their hope, as their guide. Do we know that? Do you know that this evening? Or is God still a distant figure, a convenient symbol for religious ideas? Or is He someone who is so far removed from your own condition that you don't imagine that He could become so real as to become your friend? Well, surely it's sin or something like that that's preventing us from acknowledging the truth of His own word, which speaks so clearly about his friendship, about the gospel call, not only his invitation, it's a commandment. The commandment of God is to repent. That was his commandment. And we are told that this is the only response that God expects or wants from us. He doesn't want us to clamor up to him with all what we have done and to commend ourselves they have done all these things, they have done all these things and that things and I've been helpful, I've been kind, I've been religious, I've been upstanding. They're no use to him. Might as well be thrown out. Because if we want to come to know him, if we really want peace with him, that is only through Christ, through coming to acknowledge what he has done. It's everything the Christian is, if he is a Christian, is what he is through Christ. That's why the Christian always looks to Christ. Because Christ has done everything that he should have done and has not done. Where the Christian fails, he looks and he sees Christ's perfection. When he sees his sin, he looks to Christ and he says, there's my sin, nailed to the tree. He doesn't gloat over his sin. He doesn't treat it lightly. He treats it with that much respect and fear because he recognizes the cost that was to the Son of God to take his sin. But looks with reverence at the cross. He looks with confidence. Because when it comes the day of judgment in which every man shall be judged, he does not depend upon what he has done individually. He depends on what Christ has done. And that is the only confidence he has. And that's why it's not only valuable, but absolutely necessary to know Christ, to come to him as he exhorts us. Come unto me, all that labor and are heavy laden, and I will, I will give you rest. Is that not what our hearts need? Wherever we are, whatever we do, we need rest. And the only real rest is the rest comes through knowing Christ as Lord and Saviour. May it be then we shall be brought from our darkness to the light of the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Let us pray. <coughs> our gracious God, as we wait upon Thee, we thank Thee for all that is thyself. Our finite minds cannot comprehend all that thou art. 
My truth gives us enough information to make us realize that thou art a great God. And yet thou art a God who has condescended to look upon us in our sin. And thou hast sent a Savior, a great and a gracious Savior. One whom we can never be worthy of. And his invitation is to come as we are. And we thank thee for such an invitation. And we do not dress ourselves up. We need not come with all we have done. But we come with our sin. With our selfishness, with our pride, with our prejudices. And we come to one who knows what we are better than we do ourselves. And we come to one who takes us as we are. And who forgives us as we come to him. Give us that strength just to come to thee, we pray. If we've never come to thee before, and granted we might know what it is to be brought into the Saviour's presence. And may we know that peace that comes through coming to know him. And that peace and that joy, which is the special privilege and blessing of each one who comes to know the Saviour. For we ask all these things for Jesus' sake. Amen.